Well, uh, we do currently in this country have a fascination. I mentioned this a few weeks back, a fascination with zombies. Uh, they seem to be everywhere. They're dressed up. They're at parties. Halloween is a big zombie day. Uh, movies. Um, are gl- we have zombie races, of course, 5Ks for zombies. And, uh, and friends of zombies. And uh, we have TV shows and, and the whole like. And, you know, I didn't realize this, but uh, the actual word and idea entered uh, American life back in 1929 in an old... Uh, uh, movie called uh, The Magic uh, Land. And uh, it hit, though, the big time in 68 with Night of the, I think, Living Dead. And, of course, it's, it's taken off. They have risen and they've come to life and they are now everywhere. But I, I, was, I was wondering why the fascination with zombies. And, and uh, so as I was kind of looking at it, w- one proposal I'd make to you is I think There are many reasons, I think, actually, that we have an attraction to this idea. But one, I would argue, would be uh, our fatigue of the secularized world. We've lived in houses without windows. We've lived by what we see and what we taste and what what we hear and what we do, and we have... We have removed transcendence from life and we're hungry for it. We know intuitively there has to be something beyond what we see and what we can manufacture and what we can enjoy. And and I think that this idea of of something after life is just fundamental to us. Um, This subject that we're going to talk about today, the idea of death, dying, is so incredibly important to everyone. Every one of us here is going to die. That's the reality of it. I mean, death is no respecter of the color of your skin or the educational background you've had or the upbringing or the amount of money you have or your jobs, your social position, families you've come from. It matters not. It darkens the door of every single home. It is the final enemy. And it's something that, that we in our kind of our death-denying culture, we can't, we, don't, we can't put it aside. We don't want to put it aside anymore. Now, thankfully, the Bible speaks about death. In fact, the Bible speaks about the death of death. You know, we come from last week, chapter 24 of Isaiah, where God brings a judgment, I mean, a mind-bending judgment on the world, and now he moves right into chapter 25. Uh, where Isaiah kind of opens for us the glory and the beauty of what will be like, what life will be like beyond the grave, beyond death. This is what it's going to be like. Uh, Isaiah is a visionary prophet. And and this Bible makes no defense. He's giving us a vision of this is what it's going to be. And here's what we're going to celebrate. Now, it doesn't answer every single question you may have about the end, but it does speak clearly so there's a celebration, it's put in the context of a song that we're going we're gonna to read and a feast that we're going to see, and from that we're going to see this is what we'll be celebrating. This is what we'll be enjoying. It's profound. I, I pray that it will challenge your understanding of both this life and the life to come. I, I pray that it would incite you to live for the glory of the gospel with all the days of your life, with an unshakable hope in what God has spoken to us. You'll keep saying this refrain, for the Lord has spoken. This is God speaking to us through the prophet so as to encourage us. 
I'm just going to look at it, the 12 verses. We're going to just see what they're celebrating. And from that, we'll be able to see what is beyond the pale of death. So turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 25. And uh, I'll read all 12 verses. And if you'd read it with me, because as I've been doing in Isaiah, because the texts are longer and because we're not so familiar, I'll keep referring to the text. And as I do that, I trust it'll help you both understand but also how to read. It says in 25.1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. Remember now, he's caught up in this vision, right? He's seeing all this of God. So he says, O Lord, you are my God, I'll exalt you, I'll praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It'll never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in its distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-defined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord, God, will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and that he might save us. This is our Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in its place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hand in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his wall, of his walls, he will bring down. So looking at this passage, a lot of times I think we tend to read these passages and our first thought is, what in the world is he speaking about here? And so, so I, I just want to kind of move through it slowly. I just want to bring up four things that, that we will be rejoicing, that we'll be celebrating over God for the things that he's done. In other words, the first thing I think you're going to see here in verse 1 is that, is that we will be celebrating a God who is sovereign over the nations in bringing about a plan of salvation, in bringing about a new heavens and new earth. In other words, the heavens that we'll enjoy, these have all been planned of God. The salvation of people will be planned of God. Look at what he says. He says, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I'll praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Now, just look at that for a minute. In other words, Isaiah is saying, we worship you because you have done miraculous things. That's the word wondrous. It's a miraculous things that you've done. The reclaiming and the restoring of people, the saving of a people is from his plan of old. He's planned to do it long ago. God from eternity past planned to save a people and bring them to himself. 
He planned to do it. In other words, we don't want to ever think that God brought Jesus as like he's the Hail Mary pass. We've got a problem. This is a last-ditch effort. The world's going sideways. We've got to have a new plan here. God planned this. He knew it all, planned it all, and he moved through it. God is sovereign. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from his will. That God is sovereign over the events of all nations. We saw that in, in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, we read this. He says, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, who will turn it back? Where he says in Isaiah 40, behold, the Lord comes with might, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense is before him. In other words, he doesn't act off the cuff. He doesn't need a pinch hitter. God planned. So when we, when we stand in glory, we're going to worship him because we're going to see how he organized, orchestrated, sovereignly led it all. Now, folks, this, on this side of eternity, ought to just draw forth praise from us that our names will have been written in this Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world, that he knew us, he loved us, and he moved to save us. I mean, can you sing with that? Can you sing with me over his praise for delivering you before the foundations of the world? That he had planned for you to know him. And this is what Paul seems to pray when you look at Ephesians. He says, may God be blessed in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It says in verse 5, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the purpose of his will. His will, his plan, the plan from of old. He planned it. And it says, All to the praise of his glorious grace. How can you not praise him? I mean, the incredible thing is, what kind of, the only way that this unbelievable worship can come out of people is to recognize that he's done it all. He's, he's, he's planned it. He's brought it forth. He's brought forth a son to save. He's drawn us into it by faith. And now we'll be with him forever. And I think that's what Paul's point in, in Corinthians when he writes, he says this, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the first picture of heaven is we're going to say, God, you did it all. You chose me. You knew. You planned it. You brought it. You brought the circumstances in my life. You organized it. You brought the gospel. You made my ears open to hear it. You saw my eyes see it. And and we're just worshiping because it was all planned. He did it. He wanted glory to come to himself through a redeemed people. And we're going to worship him. No one will boast. Nobody's going to say, yeah, I'm really glad I made that choice. I'm glad I listened to that preacher. We're going to know that God lit the fire in our soul to love him. And we will boast in him. I think that's the first thing that we're going to see. And and I pray 
that your worship might be like Isaiah's. Look, look in verse 1, the personal nature of it. You are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Can you worship with that level of intimacy and personal knowledge of God? God wants to be worshipped by you personally. I mean, when you see this and you hear this, to think that worship is coming to church, really? I mean, doesn't it pale in comparison to just post when you hear language? You are my God. That personal, just grabbing of God saying, you're mine, you planned it from eternity. I mean, the idea of coming to church or, well, I believe in these propositions, Tom. I believe in this. Yes, I believe these are all true. It seems, uh, seems a far cry from the worship that we see in Isaiah before God. And I think it'll be a far cry from that worship in heaven. But look at the second thing that we're going to celebrate God over in the new heavens. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. He says, For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Now, if you remember from last week, we talked about the nature of the city in Scripture. Is he speaking about Jerusalem? Well, in all likelihood, it's right in view. But there's something more going on here. This idea of the city is kind of a picture, it's representative of a people trying to live apart from God. The first city you see in Genesis 4, and it was started by Cain, you see this city, and you've seen cities from Genesis 4 on, you know, people gather together, or usually around an ethnicity, and these cities grow and they become strong, they build walls, they become successful, they become arrogant, the weak and the, and the, and the disenfranchised are abused, and then they conquer other cities, and it's a picture of man, man trying to live apart from God, man trying to set his own rules and live by his own patterns and live for his own glory. That's the city of man, and God's going to crush it, as we saw last week in 24. He's going to crush the city, but, but here's the greatness of God that we're going to celebrate, that in the judgment of the cities, he's still going to be drawing out the ruthless and the strong to worship him. You see the language of worship there in verse 3. Strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. In other words, we're going to be marveling over how God takes the strong and the proud and the arrogant and he humbles them. And, and he takes the wicked and the ruthless and he makes them weak and servant-like. That the, the arrogant are going to become contrite. That we're going to worship a God who can transform even the most wicked and ruthless person. You, you can just imagine the stories that would be told on that day. Think of Paul, for example. I mean, Paul was a, was a murderer. I mean, he was there, an accomplice to the stoning of Stephen in all likelihood. He's got letters from authorities. He's going to go to Damascus. He's going to bring about some greater suffering and persecution upon these Christians. That's what he's going to do. He's gonna, that's his intent. But God says, no. God just says, no. Knocks him to the ground, blinds him. Says, you go to that city and you stay there until I tell you what to do. I'll give you your marching orders now. I'm the God of the universe. You're not going to do what you think you're going to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. And he does. And he told him, you're going to suffer for the nations in declaring my gospel. I mean, can you imagine the story? All those people that have just been ruthless and wicked and that God, can't you imagine the stories that you're going to hear? I love conversion stories. Carol and I always, whenever I have people over, I always love to, how did God bring you to himself? It's always exciting to hear. It's always different. It's always nuanced. Some 
They've been raised in a Christian home, and they come to faith early, and it's a beautiful story. I like those as much. I mean, to be raised and to not go through all the travail and the darkness that so many of us do, praise God for that. But for those people that, that have really gone on the dark side and hit the skids and God reclaims them, I mean, can you imagine the stories? That's what we're going to be worshiping them. Look what God did. The strong peoples and the ruthless nations, they fear him now and they glorify him and they love him. They love him. But not just that. Look at the weak that he rescues. In verse 4 he says, You've been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Boy, so many of us can already testify to this truth on how God does preserve us. and Through trials and difficulties, God sets up those shelters. You know, you're kind of so hiking in Austria uh, up, up the, well, we lived near the Foralpen, so they weren't the Alps, but they were before the Alps, Foralpen, and uh, they would often have shelters up there. That way, when you're hiking and you're caught in a storm and you're far, far away from protection, there'd be a shelter that you could kind of take refuge under. And, and, and that's what God is for us. And, and the, the, what we're praising him in heaven is not just for the just not for the redemption of the wicked, but the rescue of the weak, how he is a shelter and a shade to us. We're going to hear stories about God protected his saints over and over and over again. Does he protect them all? He does. Some, though, he doesn't protect forever. Some are brought to him through death. The innocent die. The ruthless do kill the innocent. But I think the protection he's speaking about is not just always protecting us in this life, but protecting us so that we will be at the banquet. Those that he has planned from of old will be at the banquet. As Jesus said, not one of them will I lose. Not one of them. Not one or two or three. Well, that's pretty good. You didn't lose, you know, only three of them, Jesus, you lost. That wasn't bad. But not one of them will be lost. So we're going to worship him for that. So the second thing we're praising him is he, he redeems the wicked and he rescues the weak. But do you realize this is a story that you're going to be able to tell? I mean, this idea of the ruthless and the wicked glorifying and fearing him. Is that not your story? I, I, I mean, were you not enemies of God? You may not have been postured against God like, I hate him. You might not have been that kind of enemy, but you may have been walking in this cosmic dismissal where you're just living your life and you've given no thought to God. And the fact that you go to church... He's beholden to you. You know, you've actually thought, well, God, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. Of course you ought to love me. Of course you ought to take me into glory. I mean, we actually hold God in contempt when we do a couple nice things for him, even though he's giving us life, he's giving us breath, he's formed us, he's created us, he's sustaining the world around us, and we think he owes us something. Do you realize that you were an enemy? Did you reconcile yourself to God, or did he reconcile you to himself? I mean, to, to me, when Paul's words in Romans 5, he says this, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved. In other words, if God is going to go to the extent of reconciling us when we are enemies, we can definitely rest in our salvation. It is sure. So we're going to praise God. We're going to celebrate God for his plan of old. People, he had a plan for you. Amazing, I was just talking to a dear brother, and I was talking about the role of the pastor. It, it, you know, there's a scripture in Corinthians 2 where he says um, about preaching, who's up for such a task? You're preaching a message, a, a Rome of death to those who are perishing. 
and your aroma of life to those who are being saved. It's always, things are always moving towards eternity. Some are perishing, some are eternal life. I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing idea that we have been drawn from death to life. Okay, the third thing I want you to see, and look in 6, because these verses here really are some of the most incredible verses in Scripture to me. 6 through 9, I'll read them slowly because they're, they're so full of hope for us. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. And he will swell up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Let me stop there. This is the third reason we're going to celebrate. This is the third aspect of this new heavens and, and new earth. It's set in the context of a feast. A feast he's... He's using extravagant terms. It's a feast that will include all peoples. There is going to be no distinction. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. And, and, and look at how he heaps the terms, right? Food, rich food, and then aged wine, and then food with marrow, that fat portion that only God would normally eat, is now shared with us. And, and this refined wine, that's the stronger wine at the bottom, and the, and the sediment of the grape skin filtered out. It's the, it's the priciest, the nicest wine. What he's showing us is that the joy that we're going to be experiencing with him is going to be satisfying. It's going to be rich. It's going to be exciting. Can't you imagine? We're getting excited about Thanksgiving right now and Christmas coming and the time of joy and the food that we're going to have. And the banquet that God spreads out for us is, is unimaginable. Displaying his unfathomable generosity what a generous god you know the in the book of esther the king is is celebrating a feast for his people if you read it for 180 days all kinds of food spread out and the king did it just to display his generosity and yet what kind of feast will god lay out before us this is heaven it's to it's to get us salivating for wanting to be with him but here's the point of the celebration You see it in verse 8 when he says, he will swallow up death. In other words, the third reason that we're going to be worshiping God in heaven is because he vanquished death. He swallowed it up. Death, by the way, in Canaanite religion, was seen as a swallower. So you see pictures, and, and death is pictured as its lip touching the earth and its tongue reaching into the stars showing that death swallows everything. Nothing escapes. Nothing escapes death. No one, nothing, everything dies. Everything disintegrates. Everything decays. That's how death is pictured. And yet he has swallowed up the swallower. He's killed the killer. He's done it. It's swallowed up. It's gone. It threatens us no more. Can you imagine? No more funerals. No more parting. You know what I mean. No more parting with loved ones. No more walking down that road preparing them. None of that anymore. It'll be a glorious day that he has swallowed it up. But look what he swallows with it. 
There's more, if you can imagine. Look in verse 6. It says, On this mount the Lord of hosts will make for all people, excuse me, in 7, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. So what does this mean? Is it the same thing as death? Many scholars think so. It's just another, it's a, it's another expression for death. But I think there's a little bit more. And the reason I say that is because the idea of covering or the idea of veil is often in scriptures the veil blinds us to the glory of God. That, that the covering of all nations, that it's the nature of sin that prevents us from seeing God in all of his glory, of having full knowledge of God. Now we've already read back in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 9, he says, they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. You have that same mountain language, you know, mountain in chapter 2 and chapter 11 and chapter 24. Uh, on this, he says, they shall not hurt or destroy my, all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That in the swallowing up of death and bringing us to himself, now we will fully, fully understand God. We will truly understand God. We will see him in all of his glory. It says in 1 John that we'll see Jesus and we'll be like him. Can you imagine? Your minds will function perfectly. All your questions, all the mysteries, all the struggles will now be revealed to you. You will see them. You'll understand him. You'll love him in even greater fashion. The knowledge will be there in fullness for us. But not only will will knowledge be given to us as death is swallowed up, look at the second half of verse 8. I love this part. He says he'll wipe away the tears from their faces and the reproach from people he will take away from all the earth. Now, what does this mean? Well, I I think the reproach of his people is really in two parts. The reproach or the indignity of his people. You know, we live in a fallen world and, uh, and sin is having its way, if you will, with us. And there is reproach. There is a reproach, physically speaking. What do I mean by reproach? I mean the indignity of decaying bodies. You know, that, that, that our bodies decay, that, that our bodies begin to break down. As you get older, you begin to see it becomes less dignified sometimes to live. You know, the, the, the seniors will say, hey, growing old is, is, it takes great courage. It takes great courage to grow old because it's difficult. You begin forgetting names. You, you begin missing the mark. You know, as sharp, and, as sharp as you may be right now, 28, 48, it doesn't look the same. 58, it doesn't look the same. 68, there's a certain indignity to growing older. And that reproach is taken away. But not just the physical reproach, the spiritual reproach. I mean, all of us have histories. We all have pasts. We all have things that we've done. And the consequences have continued to live in our lives. And they are not pretty. And they're not satisfying. The idea of my past. It is a reproach. You have pasts. And and they live with you. And you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Please don't miss that. But there's still the stain of it. There's still the memory of it. That reproach will be taken away. The memories and all the consequences of our sins will be taken away. The tears will be wiped away. I don't think he's saying there will not be tears in heaven. It does say in Revelation there will be no more crying or mourning, but I think that's associated with the old order. I think there will be tears. I think there will be tears of regret initially. 
because we're going to see him as he is. We're going to see the glory. And in Matthew 12, 30, 36, he says every, you know, he's going to review every word spoken, every deed done. I think there's going to be regret. I, I, I am not living my life perfectly. I think when I see him in all this glory, and then I remember the idols that I kept kind of by my side even as I aged out, I think there's going to be tears of regret. God, why didn't I walk in greater faithfulness? Why didn't I walk with a greater commitment to you? I think there's going to be tears of regret, but I think he's going to wipe those away. And I think they're going to be replaced by tears of joy. We're going to see him who died for us. We're going to finally understand fully the gospel because we're going to finally understand what he saved us from. And I, I think there's going to be tears of joy. Think about when John Wesley and, and George Whitfield preached in England and, and they were preaching to the coal miners because you know, the industrialization took over. People left small towns. They moved into cities. They began working in coal mines. They couldn't go to church on Sunday, working all the time. And he'd preach and it's... They, they record that their black faces would be streaked with the tears running down their faces over the freedom that the gospel brings, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is going to be an incredible day. This third reason, he vanquishes death and he takes away the reproach of our sins and our decaying bodies. The perishable will put on imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. The weak will put on strong. The physical will put on spiritual. Can you imagine the day? The reproach of our sin will be taken away. The tears will be wiped away. And the tears that we have will, have will be tears of joy. It'll be unfathomable. But how? How is this going to happen? I mean, how is, how is God going to swallow up death? Well, where, what is the source of death? I mean, you don't have to read, but the first few chapters of the Bible to find out that the source of death is sin. It, it, it is our rebellion against... When I talk about sin, I don't want to talk... I, I'm not trying to... Yes, sin is kind of a, it gets a bad rap. Uh, sin is kind of an old term now. Let's call it personal rebellion. Let's call it massive ingratitude. Let's call it cosmic dismissal. I don't care what you call it. It's living as if God doesn't need you or you don't need God. It, it, it's living as if God doesn't exist. It's you doing your own thing when you want to do it. You want to set the rules. That's really what it's about. It's I don't want him set the rules. I want to determine what's right and wrong. That's what the theme of Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the nature of men and women. And that brought about sin. That was sin, and that brought about the curse. And the curse brought about death. It's there, right in the pages. You see it in chapter 4, Cain then kills. You see your first murder. Chapter 5, go back and read chapter 5 of Genesis. It's the first lineage, and you hear it, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Eight times he died, he died. What's he trying to get across? Sin brings death. Sin brings death. And all of you have been touched by it. It's dark in every one of your doors. It's our companion. It threatens us. It torments us. We fear it. It's just constantly there, like a shadow waiting. This is the glory of Christianity. This is where I think when you look at the religions of the world, this is where Christianity just, just rises above it, just infinitely high in the grace of God demonstrated by giving a Messiah, a son, to put death to death by his death. It's in the death of Christ that death died. You know, this idea of a Messiah coming, if death was caused by sin, and then Jesus comes to take upon, our, to take upon himself our sin and then die our death, we then are free. God remains just because sin has been punished, and yet God becomes a justifier by bringing us to himself through Christ. 
In Isaiah 53, just in about six weeks, we're going to read this, that we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our sins have been laid on him. This is the gospel. The gospel that Jesus Christ has borne our sins and borne the wrath of God. He bore the curse. That's why he said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he was bearing the curse and the separation from God that you and I should have borne. This is why Paul writes with great clarity in 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the glory of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, God's appointed Messiah, has come to do what we could never have done, just as Ray prayed. We could never have done it. And in his death, he put our death to death. So thankful for that. We're going to celebrate that forever. You know, in Revelation 5, 8, when you think about the Lamb and us all around the throne and saying, worthy, worthy is Lamb. He's come and he's, um, worthy is the Lamb who takes away our sins. Sometimes it leaks. This is the age, the decaying age I was talking to you about. I really, I'll really punish myself over this later. Okay, Revelation 5.8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they said, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and with your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation and people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what we're going to sing forever that he vanquished death through his death. The last thing that we're going to celebrate, at least as revealed to us by Isaiah, look in 10 through 12. This is the judgment of the wicked. It says this, For the hand of the Lord will rest on the mountain, and Moab will be trampled down in his place. A straw is trampled down. He will spread out his hands in the midst of it, like a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skills of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down. Listen, it was Moab is seen. Moab is condemned, by the way, in chapter 16 of Isaiah. Moab rejected the offer of God. They, they took comfort. Instead of appealing to God by faith turning to him, they took comfort in their high walls and the skills that they had. This is a picture of the city of man again. And God will bring the unrepentant in the city of man down, low. Did you notice how, kept, how many times he kept saying, brought low, low, low? They're being pushed down, down, down. Just as the scripture says, you know, the proud will be humbled. God will bring them down. And he does here. This is a picture of self-reliant, self-sufficient man. I'm looking at myself and my skills. I'm believing in me. It is the power is within me to find acceptance with God. And that's not the case here. That part of the worship in heaven, as difficult as this is going to be to believe, is the worship of God as he brings judgment to those who won't bend the knee to God. Revelation 19, we saw that last week. They're going to say hallelujah. It says, as smoke comes up from the pit, Revelation 19, 1 and 2, we will shout hallelujah because his justice is on display in his humbling of the proud and the breaking down of the self-reliant and the self-sufficient. 
Do you realize that when you read this, that what keeps people from this banquet is their pride? It's their self-sufficiency. It's their confidence in themselves. It's their resting in themselves. Instead of believing upon the Messiah, the one God sent to save, they believe in themselves and their own gifts and their talents and strengths. Even though God's given them all those things, they own them and now they rest on them for salvation. What do we do with this? This vision of Isaiah. Four things I've given you that we will be praising for him. Let me try to make some application. First, first to the non-Christian here. Uh, let, me, let me say a couple things. Um, if you're not a Christian, you're concerning the faith, what do you deal? I, I, I would want to sit down with you over coffee and say, how do you deal with death? In other words, what do you do with it? It's coming to you. So, so how do you deal with it? Uh, you have really two options in my mind. You have the wisdom from God that I'm explaining, or you have the wisdom of the world. Now, the wisdom of the world has many alternatives for you. It really does. Uh, you can laugh it off. You can deny it. You can make fun of it, push it off, act like it's not coming. I, I had a woman I remember one time ministering to years, years ago. She was bearing down on 80 and was not a Christian and pretty committed to it. And I said, well, what are you going to do with your death? You know, what about death coming before you? And she said, oh, I try to never think about it. I said, well, that's great and everything, but, you know, it's coming. You can close your eyes on a train track, and when you hear that thing coming down the track, it's closing your eyes and going to stop you flying down the road a bit. So it's coming. So, so that, that doesn't really work well. But the other alternatives are, you know, you could bring up some bravado, kind of, you know, push your chest out and say, I'm going to handle it kind of like a man, or woman would say, I'm going to handle it like a woman. Uh, but there's that bravado that I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to back down from this unknown. Some people want to cast, you know, kind of categorize it as a mystery. It's a mystery to me. We don't really know. But that doesn't help you when you're in the throes of death. Uh, some of us try to make it, well, it's an escape from pain. Or it's a moving on for the next generation. Let me read to you uh, Steve Jobs at the commencement address. You know, the founder of, co-founder of Apple um, gave this commencement address to Stanford University. And, and, and this is kind of the gospel of today, if you will. Uh, let me see if, this, if you find this satisfying. He says, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that, and, this, and that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. I don't know the reference for that. It's, it's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. He's speaking to, the, of course, the graduates of Stanford. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Love this part. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your inner voice, your heart, your intuition. Really? Is that going to satisfy you? Or John Lennon, the great, at least the wildly popular song imagine it's imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try no hell below us above us only sky imagine all the people living for today imagine there's no countries it isn't hard to do nothing to kill or die for and no religion to imagine all the people living life in peace i mean it takes quite an imagination it would take quite to believe that if you believe that as a non-christian 
you believe that, I, I grant you a profound strength of imagination. I would offer you the wisdom of the Bible. I would offer you an invitation to the banquet. And this invitation doesn't come from me, it comes from God himself. In Isaiah 55, we read these words. This is God, he's saying, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That is the way of the city of man. We labor for that which doesn't satisfy. We pursue things that don't bring us contentment. And God is appealing and saying, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Isn't that amazing? God offers to the wicked, the ruthless, the moralist, the religious person that doesn't believe in Christ, offers them, come to me. And I invite you. Come, there's no magical formula. It's you placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Just turning to him saying, I need you to save me. I need you to forgive my sins. Repentance and faith is how we're saved. But to the Christian here, let me just give you a couple ideas to meditate on. What do we do? What do you do this afternoon? What are you going to do the rest of the week? Well, well look with me back in verse 9 because I think we have the answer there. In verse 9 he says this, and this is what we will say. And, and I want you to notice the tense of this verse because it seems to imply this is what they had been saying before they were there. So in verse 9, he says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is past tense. This is what they were doing until the day. It says, We have waited for him that he may save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So what does that mean? Well, it means we wait. But how do we wait? Do we kind of wait with the hands in the pockets, waiting for the bus? No, we wait by faith. We wait in faith, that, that firm trust, expectation. It is a reality that's coming. And, and when we know it to be a reality that we're living in light of, then we begin to have this strength through God's spirit to sacrifice for others, to forgive our enemies, to forgive our spouses, to walk in holiness, to live for the gospel, to give sacrificially, to die to other people. In other words, it's, it, it is waiting by faith engenders strength that we can actually do what the scriptures call us to do. We can actually obey as the scriptures call us to obey. Jonathan Edwards gives this kind of analogy. You know, he's the 18th century pastor in New England, brilliant man. He says this about faith in his book, Religious Affections. He says, he says, it's as if a king sent you a letter that you now are an heir to a great inheritance in his land. What do you do with that? So now you've been notified that you are going to be granted a great inheritance. What do you do? Well, if you believe it, then you get up, you leave friends and family, incur great expense to travel to this land to claim your prize to claim your inheritance. But if you just take that word and you just cogitate on it and think about it and feel warm and fuzzy over it, he goes, you're not really walking by faith. You have to get up and go claim the inheritance. And I think that's what he's speaking about here, that we wait by faith. That's active, active waiting, trusting, and walking out the scriptures as you understand them and as you are taught them. 
But, but then secondly, I think we wait with confidence. Confidence in that God's going to bring about this banquet. In other words, I think there's a missional call here in this confidence that God from of old has planned that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. And, and that we are the ones proclaiming the gospel to bring them to the banquet. Right? So we're a means of grace for that. And, and, and so I think how we wait is that we engage in great missional living. You don't have to go overseas. It may just be going next door. But we're called to have confidence that when we proclaim the gospel, people will believe. Why? Because he planned of old that people would believe. If he hadn't planned it, I wouldn't have a chance believing that my persuasive skills could undo the hard self-centeredness of people. God has to do the work. And so my preaching is the means of grace where people come to faith. And so you, in your relationships, in the community that you live, you know, Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11, listen, he says, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember the east and the west were used in chapter 24? The song of the redeemed from the east and the west and the coastlands. You think Jesus didn't think about 24 and 25 when he spoke about this? So, so be, be diligent to pursue God for grace. That you can witness, that you can speak to the glory of Christ. The people in your life, you have confidence because God has planned from of old. But I would also say that we wait without fear. I don't want you, and I, I speak I really speak, a lot of my heart is towards those who are growing older. I also speak to the youth in the sense of you don't even consider death. I have prayed, we prayed for you to, to think about it. It's, it's wise to think about your death. It's very wise. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 90 and 39 prays for, actually, to know the death that will come. Um, but, but to those who are getting older, I don't want you to fear um, there, is, there is really no fear for the believer in death. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is no fear for us. I, I want to quote John Flavel. John Flavel was a 17th century English Puritan, a pastor, and um, easy to read and, and very helpful in terms of the things of life and death. And, and here's what he wrote. He says, Death is harmless to the people of God. Its shafts leave no sting in them. Why then are you afraid that your sickness may bring you to death? If you were to die in your sins, if death were to reign over you as a tyrant, to feed upon you as a lion does his prey, if death to you were to be the precursor of hell, then you might reasonably startle and shrink back from it with horror and dismay. But if your sins are blotted out, if Christ has vanquished death in your behalf, so that you have nothing to encounter but bodily pain, and possibly not even that, if death will be to you the forerunner to heaven, why should you be afraid? Why not bid it welcome? Why not bid it welcome? When you've just read what seeing God will be like, why don't we bid it welcome? 
There's no reason to fear. In Revelation 1.17, Jesus, John, in his vision of Christ, he reports these words. He says, I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He holds them. When you get the keys, you got the place. He holds them. He's sovereign over life. He's sovereign over death now. No one needs to fear. The believer doesn't need to fear that. And then last, I would simply say this, or two quick things, that we wait with joy. There ought to be a profound joy. Jesus has killed death. Jesus has destroyed it. He has vanquished it. It wasn't close. It wasn't 39 to 38. It wasn't even close. He destroyed it. Absolutely. He has the keys of death right now. So he is sovereign over all things. And so there ought to be a joy, an excitement, a thankfulness to this life. We ought to be the most grateful, happy people. Now, you may be struggling right now in life. Ask him for a foretaste of heaven. Just appeal to God through the Spirit to give you a foretaste of what you're going to have. Ask him for the joy that you may need. Maybe you're struggling in sin. Maybe you're struggling in your marriage. You have financial problems. And right now, everything so troubling is right before your eyes, and you cannot see all that he has planned for you. Ask him. Ask him. We do not have because we do not ask. Ask him. The one who has the keys can grant you this. Ask him in faith, not doubting, being tossed to and fro. Ask him in faith. He has the keys. And then last, can we be a people that wait with anticipation? You know how much I love Christmas. I love it. But here's why I love it. The glory of the day is what gives me joy today. The happiness of that day and all the nostalgia that I enjoy, that joy is what makes today joyful. And so as we anticipate it, as we think about it, as we dwell upon it, that's going to provide us joy in this life. Let me pray for us, and then um, I'll orient us, and then we'll move to the table. Father, thank you for this word and for this hope that we have. We're overwhelmed, overwhelmed with you, Father. Thank you for your kind and merciful grace. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.